Hi, my name is Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm a contemporary jeweler. And like many others, I am an artist trying to make a living. On this podcast, I'm going to broach the subject of value. I'll be talking to studio artists and performers, educators and administrators, and anyone else attempting to combine their creative endeavors with how they get a paycheck. Welcome to another episode of Perceived Value. I'm Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm your host, your producer, and a woman with a questionable filter when it comes to talking about money. I want to start off today's episode with thanking my newest patrons. What is a patron? Well, a patron is someone who has signed up through my Patreon account to support the podcast every time I release a new episode. My newest patrons are Lee, Adrian, Tanya, and Douglas. Hey, your support right now, especially right now, means so, so much. So thank you very much. And if you're listening and you want to show your support for the podcast, you can definitely do that at patreon.com slash perceived value. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash perceived value. So tell me if you can relate to this. When I first started taking metalsmithing classes, I did that thing where I assumed my instructor must know everything about making jewelry. You know, my assumption was that if they were qualified to teach a class, their breadth of knowledge must span the majority of techniques involved in jewelry making. Well, you know, 10 plus years into jewelry making, I realized this is crazy, but as a beginner, I honestly thought this. It's kind of like when I'm on a first date and a guy asks me what I do. You know, I'm like, oh, I make jewelry, I'm a metalsmith, etc. If the first comment he makes is something along the lines of, cool, can you make me a sword? Then I already know the second date is probably not going to happen. With experience came the understanding that just because, you know, someone is a stone setter does not mean they know how to pave set. Or just because someone is a textile artist doesn't mean they know how to warp a loom. Or just because you're a chef does not mean you can make me gnocchi. Because of this, whenever I teach or publicly speak, I like to acknowledge that my words and viewpoints are just that. My words, my viewpoints. I use that saying, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. Or if you're a cat person and you just can't bear the thought, There's also a thousand ways to die in the West. The point being that there are many ways to do something, many ways to achieve a goal. When teaching or speaking, I feel this is really important to remember and bring attention to because everybody's personal experiences shape how or what they teach and how they answer questions from students. In February, I visited Humboldt State University in Arcata, California, which is home to those majestic, gigantic trees, redwoods. As a visiting artist, I gave an artist presentation to the art department, but the highlight of my visit was the time I spent with the jewelry and metal students. Their professor, Emily Cobb, and I had a small miscommunication via email, which led to an exciting new take on the podcast. 
My understanding was that I'd be bringing my microphones and, you know, would likely interview a few students about their experiences in academia, what Humboldt is like, etc. But Emily was under the impression that the students were going to ask the questions. And with this in mind, she had assigned them each to come up with three questions for me. And to make sure that there were a variety of topics addressed, she had them submit the questions ahead of time. So I fly across the country, Emily grabs me at the airport, I think we're having a nightcap, and at some point we realize our confusion, and she lets me read over her students' questions. I'm not sure I would have suggested the students leading the interview, because, well, my podcast, my questions, but dang, I'm really happy this is how it turned out. This might be the most anxious I've ever been about releasing an episode, It's my 50th episode, so shout out to all those who continue to support the podcast. And it's also the first time that I'm essentially a guest on my podcast. And these students did a really great job at being the interviewers, because let me tell you, it's no small task. There is a special kind of vulnerability that I ask of my guests, and so it seems only fair that at some point I return the favor. There are a thousand ways to broach a topic. And I was more than happy for this opportunity to be radically transparent, vulnerable, and informative as possible. With that in mind, I have a small disclaimer that, you know, some information might not be 100% accurate, or maybe you feel very differently about how I answered a question. That's fine. That's okay. If you'd like me to share something with the students or have more resources for me, you can send me an email at perceivedvaluepodcast at gmail.com. Today's interviewers in order of appearance, Hannah Gregory, Genevieve Jesbu, Tegan Bevins, Angie Young-Petrio, Aluka Eddy, Preston Thibault, Lisa Heike-Huber, Justice Reckes, Kaylin Faley, Catalina Prince, Winchy De Jesus, Wendy Truelove, Julia Jenks, Justice Heffernan. So, please welcome today's guests, the students of Humboldt State University, and yours truly, Sarah Rachel Brown. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm gonna turn you up a little bit. Okay. Okay. Go. Um. Okay, so I know that you were on the panel to judge the Ethical Metal Smiths student exhibition, So Fresh and So Clean. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you all looking for, like, photograph-wise? Like, oh. things out in nature or, like, really crisp white background? or? Hmm. I think for me, and this is something because I've been able to... Uh, jury a few things um it's image quality above all right like lighting it doesn't matter if it's a stark white background or hot pink or in nature um it really just came across in like the actual quality of the image um and then it did come down to kind of whether or not the image was distracting from what i was trying to look at now it's hard to describe that right because we're thinking of something that's visual um so it's a little bit to articulate like this is what I thought was bad but that was kind of it also um I was really drawn to images that were playful and colorful um and so I think people who maybe worked in copper or black patinaed metal only I felt like they had a little of a um disadvantage with me because I was really drawn to like the colorful stuff 
Um, but also the composition of the image, like, was it interesting or was it just like a bird's eye view of a necklace sprawled out on a piece of white paper? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> oh, you know what? You have plenty more time, girl. Okay. I'm going to start that timer for you. Plenty more questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. Start. Okay, go. Um, so I'm wondering if I am a self-employed jeweler after all of this, mm-hmm. how would I get like insurance in a 401k without having like a real job? Ob- Do you know? Obamacare? <laughs> I mean, I'm really honest about that. I didn't have insurance until last year. I still haven't even used it, which I know sounds crazy, but I'm so afraid to use it because I don't believe that my checkup is actually going to be free. It's on my to-do list when I get home to book my first doctor's appointment. Now, people have that, of course. Anybody can set up a 401k and start contributing things. Um, I haven't done it myself on my own, so you need to do your research and make that happen. Um, But with insurance... I tried to get, when Obamacare first came out, I was a working artist, I tried to get it, but I made too little to qualify for one tier and too much to qualify for this other tier. So I just, majority of my healthcare for a woman is around my reproductive health. So I've always just gone to Planned Parenthood and paid either sliding scale or free. So damn, donate to Planned Parenthood. (laughs) It keeps a lot of artists able to take up on our reproductive health for women it's really important yeah cool um still got Mm -hmm. time Uh, talking in that microphone don't say ums what is the most professional way to handle receiving a commission oh well i mean i think immediately is responding in a very timely manner um have you are you talking about like if somebody reaches out via email or in person I mean, just like friends and people on Instagram are like, Hannah, I really want you to make me something. And I'm, I'm like, okay, oh, I just yeah. don't know how to. So what you need to do is never give them a price before you understand what they actually want. And so what you do is that you say, hey, great. I don't really check my DMs that often. Can we move this over to email? Always get them to a much more like professional platform in terms of that if they approach you in person like I really want you to make something for me you have your business card on you with your email get to that email Um, and then or you say can I get your email to follow up because the majority of people are never going to follow up Um, and then you reach out to them and say can you describe to me what you want is it a ring what metal etc get all the details you can and from there you decide you know, how much materials are going to be and let them know like, Hey, I need to do a little bit more research, but I'll get back to you soon with a quote. And then from there, they can decide if they want to move forward. You're never going to make a lot of money if it's a one of a kind, because you're never going to quote yourself enough. So no matter what, add on like $200 (laughs) for all those mistakes you're going to do, because you're probably going to have a lot of mistakes. Um, and then like, deposit, do you take it? I do. If it's a sterling silver, like ring, Maybe not, but you're, you might get, you know, you might bite yourself in the ass with that one, but, um, anything that's gold or precious, or you're going to have to be casting or outsourcing anything, get a 50% deposit that covers those costs. So if they back out, at least they paid for that. And, you know, even though it might be your friend or something, it's always good to have this just like really generic agreement. Whenever I need a type of contract or something, I Google, And I find like, oh, exhibition contract or, oh, 
waiver to be recorded and put on the internet. Um, so you can find a lot of things out there really quickly. A big one for me was um, loan agreement for photo shoots. I found in a contract online that I like just downloaded it and then edited it to be more personalized to me. But you should have those. It's hard with friends, right? And so I talked about this in an edit, um, in a episode with my DJ friend Ralph, <laughs> and he talked about that he just has it like he standardized it. And you can say that in that email and they need to respect that. Like, hey, I give all friends and family a 15% discount up front. Here's your quote without the discount, you know, so they understand what they're getting. So you quote them full price and then you give them the discount afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think we're good here. Thank you. Okay. Oh, oh, there we go. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So as an artist that is basically allergic to social media Mm -hmm. um what advice would you give me to help my promotion of my art and myself pay somebody who isn't allergic to social media i mean there's no really way around it it's you know i know artists of course there's artists that are on social media and they're doing their thing um they do craft fairs they work in person i think everybody has to figure out the way that works for them if you hate doing social media you are never going to make yourself do social media it's just it's just not magically going to happen so you have two you have two options find a way to make it work without it or pay somebody that will do it because they like it Good advice. All right. Thank you. Um, that's only a minute. Do you got any more? Um, oh, well, I have random ones that I feel like kind of self-conscious about asking because they seem very elementary, but uh, one it. of them mm-hmm. <laughs> is <clears throat> what is your favorite metal to work with and why? Oh, you know, I guess it's just sterling silver. I mean, I bet if I worked in gold, I'd probably say gold, but I've never paid for gold. So, because it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like sterling. I also like the color. I love patinaed sterling silver. Oh, God, I love patina sterling silver. So, yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's it? Cool. Uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> we can talk more later. It's fine. <laughs> Yay. All right, who next? Thank you. Hi. Hello. Get closer. You're quiet. All right. Um, when starting your podcast, Perceived mm-hmm. Value, was it your goal to kind of have it be a well-known thing for like craft artists or did you want it more as a like personal documentation? I wanted it well-known for craft artists. I mean, if I'm honest, I think we all want something that's going to make us known within our field, right? And I kept thinking like, what's that thing going to be for me? Like, I'm never going to be known for my, I don't know if I'd be like the famous stone setter or whatnot. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. maybe I'll just be known as this jeweler that is not afraid to talk about money. Um, And it's not about personal documentation because it's not really about me. You know, I put the focus on my subjects, even though inherently I'm there. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I wanted it to be a tool for my peers. I wanted people to have a better understanding of what we're getting ourselves into. Yeah. Awesome. Good question. Yeah. My second one is I'm interested in doing like a residency for a craft school in the future. Can you Mm -hmm. explain the application process? And like once you're there, the whole 
rundown of things? Yeah. Well, you know, every residency, I think people get an idea that all residencies are created equal and they're not. There's so many different types. Um, Penland has a three-year residency. It's very prestigious. It's very competitive. Um, and that's for somebody who is at a point in their career that they're a self-sustaining artist. Um, they're not there to learn. They're there to like really propel their career or do a big change in their career. Um, Aramont's residency, however, is much more for an emerging artist. It's typically people who have just graduated or finished a core fellowship. um, And you're just getting started with your teaching career. Um, But then again, there's also people there that have come after their MFAs or have been a working artist for years as well. But um, they're more open to the emerging. And then there's other types of residencies where you can pay to go. and it can be short term. You know, there's also the question of like, well, what do you define as a residency? Is a residency one week? Is it two weeks? Is it a year? Are you somebody who thinks of a residency of when you're, you know, uprooting your entire life to move to a place and make that happen? Or is it more of like a vacation? Mm-hmm. Um, I always say like, or do you want an adventure with your residency? Girl, you can do residencies. There's one in France that's in like an old mansion that is all different mediums. There's one in Iceland that I know a lot of people go to that you have to pay for. Um, there's ones in South America. There's ones in Amsterdam. So you really have to kind of narrow down what you want out of the residency. Um, application processes there's always going to be that essay um the writing is so important and i always tell people my greatest skill set or my biggest like tool in my chest is my editor my mentor sarah lurcher she's amazing proofreader um and she gives it to me straight and she doesn't let me stop until i've like gotten there with my essays um so you need to find somebody who's willing to really put in the time and love to be a proofreader for you because it takes a lot of time and effort and you want somebody that cares about you just as much as you care for yourself to do it. Um, And if you don't have somebody like that, pay somebody because they have to care. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, it really comes down to images. You're always going to need images um, and they always need to be really good quality. And so you either teach yourself or you find somebody that you can afford or you find somebody that's willing to do trade for you. My first images are so stunning. I still use them for some things because my mentor's partner was a photographer. So part of my work trade was getting my images taken. And um, the work has like broken solder seams in them, but the images are stunning. (laughs) So I think that's how I got the upper hand. I hope I answered your question. And usually they're all online. Something that's really great I've seen trending is that they're not asking for recommendations of let up front they ask if you're a finalist or if you're in the final stages because that's a lot of work on a professor or mentor to write those letters so um that's pretty nice that they've started doing it that way yeah okay do we Mm -hmm. have time for one more yeah go for it okay um there is a lot of at least i've heard there's a lot of like back and forth between getting a bfa or just getting a ba do you think getting a bfa makes a difference in an artist's career Mm -hmm. okay well First of all, <laughs> I have a hard time figuring out what the difference is. I don't even know if I know this difference. What is it? Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Fine Arts? Yeah. It's just more of a studio focus. I mean, you can always think of me in this question of saying, I don't have a degree at all. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't stopped me in many ways. Yeah. Um, so really, 
if you're good and your application and your cover letter is badass, yeah, they're going to look to see if you have a degree, but they're not going to look too closely at it. You could have a, so, um, Maya Lepo, who's done the residency at Aeromont and she's done so many things. Her undergrad degree is in like biology. Um, mm. and she got into crafts and jewelry through craft schools post-graduation because she worked in a lab and wanted something different. And then she went to grad school for metals. She got into one of the top grad school programs in the country, SUNY New Paltz, with a degree that's not even in art for undergrad. So don't let don't hang up on those things. I don't know which one's cheaper. Go for that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any price difference? No. Go based on that. <laughs> okay. Well then, yeah, that's that's it. All right. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to know a very personal question, which is what are the largest obstacles that you have faced in the time you would consider yourself in your career? Mm-hmm. And how has that changed your path? Oh, largest obstacles. Well, obviously finances. Um, <laughs> my greatest fear is being poor. So that manifested into a podcast about it. Um, it's been that, but it's also been my family dynamic. I've um, found that I experienced a lot of death um, really quickly. Um, it was started with my mom, then it was my best friend suddenly, and then it was my dad and my grandpa. And that sent me back a good few years in terms of productivity and just being able to like push myself. I think we're not kind enough to ourselves about the human aspect of our lives and that, you know, sometimes you can't go to the studio because you're just emotionally drained or your health is not good. Um, so those, those things have been really big obstacles. And also, um, I think another really big obstacle for me in my career has been feeling um, not having like a safety net. Like I do have a safety net. I showed you a picture of my faux family. They have actually been my safety net. My mentor has been my safety net. Um, but anywhere I've moved and whatnot, I've just kind of been like, all right, I'm doing this. I'm on my own. Um, some shit hits the fan. I don't have anybody really close nearby to help really quickly. Um, so those, that fear of feeling that I will fail and no one can help me, um, has kind of held me back, but there are things that I work through all the time. I think that answered your question, right? Yeah, it did. Did it? Yeah. I would say, um, Honestly, it's just always been finances. You're really held back. I mean, I, you know, it's like you can do anything, but it's like still takes time to save money. And, you know, going to residency still take a lot of money to get there. Even going to a Penland class, you know, that first time I went, that plane ticket was pretty much all my money, you know? So that's always been it for me. You got another one? I do. So in the episode of your podcast that I listened to, you mentioned how trade shows are past their golden age. And while social media is a powerful tool, it doesn't fill the same space that trade shows do. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as the best place for people to view and buy work and the best place to be seen and to sell work for jewelry artists? So I I make statements (laughs) because I like talking. And I do think trade shows or craft shows are past their golden age where majority of people I've talked to that have been doing them for 20 plus years, you know, they used to make thousands 
of dollars in a single show and that just is not the case anymore so that's where that um, comment stemmed from enough of those conversations now do are they still active are they still happening are still people making their living from them they are but you know their cost of living has risen and their income has lowered so their quality of life has probably suffered and I think when you think about what kind of income you have to make you have to factor in like what do you want to pay yourself an hour what's your overhead do you have to pay for insurance do you want to have a family all of these things um and so when you get that kind of idea down that number and what that means for that your annual salary then you have to look at like okay if i do five craft shows a year and i want to make fifty thousand dollars a year pre-taxes can i realistically make over $10,000 a year at each show. And that's profit, that's not net. Um, and I think that's a question you have to answer yourself and then, then you kind of can figure out where you can be making work. You also can break it down by how many pieces in a month you wanna make or a week or a year. So if you're making, if you're like, oh, I can make 20,000 rings a year. And then you figure out where can you sell 20,000 rings? There's no magical answer, and I think people have a hard time with that because we want to. We want to have some kind of like, okay, I can make this happen, and this will work for me if I do it, but it's all a gamble. Um, I know people who are making a killing on Etsy, and there's this like trend where you have um, releases. So my friend Alex is really smart about it. She runs Acid Queen Jewelry. Um, she makes a ton of money off of her Instagram sales, I believe. But what she does is she do she does shop updates. So she creates hype around her shop updates. She makes a bunch of work. She'll maybe have like 15 pieces. She'll get them photographed. They'll get she'll have the time to put them on her website, and then she'll be like, "Shop update coming June 17th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Shop update. Get on my." mailing list to be the first to have access to the shop update and then those pieces sell out and then she starts over and then she has an understanding each shop update if she sells out everything how much money did she make from that profit so then her prices get fluctuate based on that oh i can raise it because they're selling out or oh pieces aren't selling out when they're priced at this so i guess i have to go lower that means every shop update i do once a month i'm only making like fifteen hundred dollars it's a complicated answer, but I hope that gives you some insight. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right, so um, I am a non-traditional art student. I'm a sociology major with an emphasis, emphasis in death and dying. <gasps> um, I have the desire to pursue <laughs> the sociology of art and hopefully combining the two. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, I'm also an artist, a maker, but with no particular specialization of um, medium, mm -hmm. although I'm loving small metals right now. Mm. Um, do you have any practical advice for how to pursue art from this kind of non-traditional angle? Like what paths might be available for someone like me to gain more experience um, and with some mentorship? So one of my friends, I sang classically throughout my life. Um, when I went to college one of the times, <laughs> I was on a vocal scholarship. So I've always been surrounded by musicians. And one of my friends, who's a gorgeous soprano too, she went in for music therapy um, because she understood that she wasn't gonna be a celebrated opera singer, 
but she loves music and she needs it in her life. And how is she going to adapt that to her career? So um, I believe, you know, music therapy is utilizing the that to help somebody cope is really the basis of it. And I know that's the same thing for a lot of artists. There's art-based ones as well. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're teaching them a hard technique, but you're giving them a way to focus on something other than maybe their grief, maybe their pain, maybe they have mental illness and painting can give bring them joy or calm. I know there are specialized programs for this, for training. I know that there are people out there that do this every day in their lives. Um, I'm sure, I remember my mom was handicapped most of my life and she lived in a nursing home. Um, And there was a woman whose job was to go around to different nursing homes and facilities and do art classes with them. I still have, oh God, I love my mom so much. Oh, tearing up. I still have a pillow she made. It's so cool. It's so like a third grader made it. Um, I know, I'm sorry. She signed it and I still have it. And I know those places can be so dark for people. Um, So you should really think it up. Yeah. Ah, Jesus Christ. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you could do a lot. Um, I wish I had more um, insight to give you, but it's such a beautiful thing. And grief, oh my God, there has to be. Because, you know, I think they say that Victorian era, you grieve for a whole year, you wear black. Um, Fuck, I was grieving for like four and a half years. I was telling somebody, I don't think I stopped grieving until um, my second year I was living in Philly, where I was up in Maine and there was like a day and I was like, oh my God. I don't think I'm grieving right now. You know, like there was just like this weird weight that had been lifted and you know, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes I like, I, it still comes over me, but not such like a consistency. Yeah. I don't feel like you ever completely stop grieving, but it can be a really awesome creative outlet. Like last semester, um, I lost the most important relationship to me. It was with my dog, my dog. (laughs) Um, and all of my art, subconsciously was driven by my relationship to him yeah so yeah so like how could you and you could specialize that you know um because I know grief with pets is a really big thing for people so it's like what how could you manifest that you know it could be something really great um yeah it's grief is something that needs a lot of love and understanding and it's really hard and it manifests so differently in everybody I was angry and mean oh yeah when I'm grieving so um maybe there should be a blacksmith smithing class for that where you can just come pound on some hot metal and get it out um and make some really ugly work oh my god my with metal music in the background yeah my final exhibition at Aramont you know my dad I moved into Aramont in May my dad died suddenly in August at the beginning of my residency and I was like fucking damn it I mean people I called were just like really and I was like I'm not making this up yes so um my final exhibition there that work is still in boxes I haven't unpacked it since I took it out of the gallery I've barely photographed it I barely shared it it's really personal it's just my pain manifested and it's not pretty um and I don't know if I'll ever be able to open that work or what I want to do with it but it sits in boxes yeah, but at the same time, isn't it like the most meaningful work you've had? I uh, probably. I mean, maybe I have to look at it. It's 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 not. 
I don't know. I don't have to think of it, you know? So help some people make some ugly shit with their feelings. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Great. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So I was at your talk yesterday and I really liked your mindset about um, saying yes to most things until you're able to say no. Mm-hmm. And I've been shout trying out to Lori. To, shout out to Lori. <laughs> um, I've been really trying to incorporate that into my life recently. Mm-hmm. And so I was just curious of an opportunity that you said yes to that you didn't really feel <clears throat> qualified for that ended up being like one of your most memorable experiences. And then on top of that, one of the most recent times you were actually able to say no. Oh, God, I love that question. Okay, so um, I said yes to being the medals coordinator for the Pentaculum residency. And this was like six years ago. Um, My friend Jason had started this invite-only residency. And there was a woman who was going to run the medals studio and last minute kind of stepped out. Um, And he was like, Hey, Sarah, like I was a core fellow at Penland. He had been around Penland a lot. And he's like, you know, I think you're great. I think you have a great personality. And I think you could totally pull off this role. And I was in the middle of like Penland summer. And I was pretty much unknown when when I went to Penland in Mm -hmm. terms of my field. Um, I didn't know any ceramic artists or things like that. And I remember being like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, think about it, but let me know. Because if you do, you need to invite a group of artists and they all need to say yes within like two months. Um, you know, cause it was wow. not only like stepping into the role it was stepping into it last minute. And so I had to like get on the ball. Right. And I remember Leslie Noel, the programs director at Penland, I told her about it and was asking her about it. And I was like, I don't, I like, I don't, I'm not qualified for this. And I really don't think I should say yes. And I don't know if I can handle it. And she's like, no, no, you say yes. I'll help you. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, you can make this happen. Absolutely. Don't say no at all. Um, And she sent me names and she gave me suggestions of people to invite. And I pulled it off and it was kind of amazing. And I was like, damn. And I remember that first, that first pentaculum barely sleeping, um, being sick to my stomach every time I walked into the studio thinking somebody was going to ask me a question I didn't know how to answer. Um, but you know, I made it my own and made that, um, position thrive. And it's something now that I've handed off to somebody else who's going to make it thrive even more. And it's really cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, saying no, I need to say more of that. Um, you know, I have an email in my inbox right now by somebody who heard the podcast and has a upcoming, I, I'm anticipating they might want me to travel to speak at a conference and it's right next to my 35th birthday and I haven't taken a real vacation in a really long time and I'm saving to go to the Bahamas or the beach or somewhere. Um, and I think I'm going to say no, like I can anticipate where it's going to lead. So I'm going to say no to that, but maybe I'll say yes to something else. Great. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Good question. Anything with those nails, girl. I'm a glass blower. <laughs> Even more, I gla- I blew glass at Penland and like, how do they not melt when you're like gathering a punty? 
They're not gels. They're, Talking to the mic. They're not gels. They're acrylic, and you have to make sure that, um, you know, they're kind of like tools, actually. So, like, when I can't pick up, like, a pencil, which is really, like, a glass rod of color that I need, like, these are like, oh, I got it. And I can kind of handle my tweezers a lot better, too. I know. It's kind of crazy. I've been blowing glass a long time. That's and crazy. I put these back on since I got started here because I'm when you're displaying your work in photographs of oh, my yeah. age I'm like oh okay like I could use a little love so if I you know mm-hmm. have nice little nails then my pieces look a little better plus you know many of the younger crowd in this in my industry they're really hardcore about it so yeah yeah it helps <laughs> I, I relate whenever I do something big or go on a trip or whatever I usually get like a nice manicure yeah Always. Yeah, New York yeah, City Jewelry Week. Or flippies or something. Yeah. You have your toes looking fly because yeah, because <laughs> you you're walking me. a lot, especially. Yeah. So I don't know. I have a couple of questions, so I'm going to try and decide which one. Um, but my first one is: Was there a specific moment in your career, or your life, that made you decide to do this podcast specifically on this subject? Because it's a very under-discussed conversation: the perceived value of your work, and mm-hmm. I know that what you're really going for. So that's why I felt like something must have happened that made you say this is a need um you know I think well I think it was just a combination of it like my whole life being kind of poor because my mom is handicapped so like mm-hmm. just living off government aid um and then you know I I spoke to the class about my frustrations once getting to Penland thinking that I was going for an experience that was going to give me the, not only the literal tools and techniques to make the things, but how to make a living and that conversation really not being a big part of the mm-hmm. conversation. Um, and then I think it was also, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. It was right there. The most pivotal. <laughs> oh, here it is. I went to a, I really struggled to get, um, when I went to Penland, so my mentor sat me down and she was like, listen, you've worked next to me for three years and my aesthetic is undoubtedly within your work because it, how could it not be? And she's like, that's okay. She's like, you're going to have two years to try to find your own artistic voice. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm making all these things. I don't really have time to focus on your artistic voice. If you think being a core fellow is like, mm, I have all this time in the studio to think about my aesthetic, you're crazy. Um... And so I really struggled to find my artistic voice or what my aesthetic was as a maker. And I went to a lecture by Sonia Clark, um, who I adore. And she said something that struck me that was, you must find your own authentic obsession and you must stick to it. And this was a woman who was getting an artist to talk about how she'd really dialed in on POC women's hair um, and all her work about that. and. I'm not giving a good enough description of this. Oh my God, I'm going to stop. Sonia, I love you. Um, But I scribbled that frantically on a checkbook that I still have because I wrote it on there. And I was like, my own authentic obsession is my financial well-being. And I don't know how that's going to manifest in my studio practice other than making production type work because I'm so afraid of making something that's unsellable. Um, But that moment was like, oh, I got it. Like, I know what it is. Um, and I didn't know that it was going to be the podcast, but I knew I had to follow that. Nice. Well, that pivots to the next question I Ooh. have, which is... Um, Closer to your okay, mic. It's more of a two-part question, which is how many production items do you have in your production line and what is your price range? Okay, third, is it wholesale <laughs> or retail and do you entertain one or the other or do both? Or 
Well, I don't really do it anymore. So I have to be honest about that. Like, I, you know, once in a while I get a check from Penland or Aramont. It's the only two places that carries my quote unquote production line of jewelry, which I called my everyday collection. I have a ring on. Hello. Nice. Um, and over time, I just created more designs because I had a gallerist tell me that I didn't make anything new and she wasn't going to order anything that she's already mm. ordered before. And I was like, oh, you have to keep remaking stuff. <laughs> um, so I know people, you know, God, Tara Locklear, how many designs does she have? She has like hundreds within her collection. It's too much. I know she said that she like dialed it back. For me, I had three shapes I worked with, an oval, a circle, and a tear. Mm. And then I worked with size. So I had three sizes. So grandma can get her tiny tears. Um, the working mother can get her medium-sized tears. And then the girl going out for the weekend can get her XL tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, that's nine pairs of earrings right there. Um, and then I did studs designs. I had three shapes and studs and two different variations in each of that. And for each of these earrings, I did them in three finishes, silver, oxidized sterling silver, and 18 karat gold vermeil. Mm-hmm. And those all had different price points as well. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you know, I think I decided it's really tricky. Um, Catherine Grenley, who runs the Penland Gallery, was like, you can't change your prices that much because mm-hmm. that's good. A, my accountant's going to hate you. Mm-hmm. And B, like, it's not fair to your clients. And so I... Sterling silver and oxidized silver are the same prices, even though one has more work involved. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, 18 karat gold vermeil is higher because it's perceived value and also more expensive to make. Um, I think towards the end, I had maybe like 15 earring designs. I have spreadsheets yes. I can show them. I can just give them to you. <laughs> I was just curious. Yeah, no, would... I'd actually really, sh- I would share my spreadsheets with Emily so you guys can see how I broke it down. I once... checked your whole website. So. Uh, yeah, no, it's not, they're not all on my website at oh, all. Well, I know, I, I never. Not. That's kind of why I asked you, yeah. but I saw these earrings and a couple of the other items. Yeah, so, so I had a spreadsheet for earrings, a spreadsheet for necklaces, and a spreadsheet for rings and bangles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it showed the wholesale, quote unquote, price, and then it holds, sold the retail. But I never did wholesale. Ever. I never had a wholesale account. Would you say that's because you d- didn't attend wholesale trade shows or because you didn't have a wholesaler that you pursued? Or Yeah, both. Probably. I never did. I only did mm-hmm. one craft show. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the Philadelphia Museum of Art show. I got in as a emerging artist. It was one of those things where I went all in on my first one. I remember mm-hmm. calling my mentor and she's like, oh, okay, that's the craft show you're starting with. <laughs> and she's like, all right. Um, <clears throat> And I did it. I invested a lot of money into my booth, probably over two thousand dollars. Um, I made more work. I'm still selling the work that I made for that show, that inventory. That's how I keep stocking my galleries. I hadn't made my production line in over a year, um, but I still have a lot of earrings. Um, and I think my net profit was like a little over sixty five hundred. That's not bad. That means not you paid bad. for the booth. I, I saw or I listened to your second podcast. So you mm-hmm. talked a lot about going to this show. And yeah. Rhea was your Yeah, Rhea Rossi. And so my last question was how you felt about after I felt good I remember I was with there's like a group of gals that are are like the powerhouses of craft shows Mm -hmm. Megan Patrice Riley Ashley Buchanan Tara Locklear um, to name a few they do they hustle Mm -hmm. they do a lot of shows and they make good money at it because they've gotten it down Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember they were like it's your first craft show and you made money they're like you have to buy yourself something and celebrate this so I got myself this Suji Kwan brooch this Korean artist who was in town for the show 
Um, I bought her cheapest brooch because it was very expensive still, but it's like a nice. prized possession. That's good. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. You know, it did. You 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 deflect a little because you're a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I try to be. I try to be. Um, I try to be honest about that. You know, mm. I only dipped my toe in it, mm. and I was like, "This isn't for me." Yeah, that, yeah. And I think that's a very valuable skill to have as well. Not just doing mm. something because that's what you think you should have to do as an artist to make a living. Yeah. I was like, "Nah, I hated it." A lot of people hate it. It's really hard. Really, really. <laughs> yeah, I really so. did not like it. I love assisting people. Yeah, it's more rewarding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I don't do wholesale because I yeah. never wanted to. Yeah, you can never raise your price. You can only, you know, it makes it hard. So you want to make sure you do price things at a good, solid, you know, rate that you can either, you know, expand from that s- more simplistic design and go forward. But yeah, it's really hard to raise prices on certain do you items. Know, um, do you know about Flourish and Thrive? I'm not sure which. Oh, okay, girl. So they have a podcast. They are literally people that like work with artists to like figure out their marketing. So you should be following Liz Kantner for marketing and that kind of idea. She runs a lot of like premiere shows. She works for, um, she's actually like doing those like works in the back end of those wholesale shows and things like that. And she works with clients remotely and does seminars of people and then flourish and thrive have a podcast and that's all they're about is like helping people like you with these questions, figure those things out. I was just more curious about your perspective and so that you can oh. share more with the class. I've done 40 or 50 of these changes. Oh yeah. I was going to say, I just yeah. kind of wanted to hear what you thought about how your first experience with the craft show is. Cause I know Philly oh. is a big deal that craft shows, no messing around. So yeah, I kind of want to see your experience and, and hear. About I thought it. it was fun. And I've only listened to one other podcast, which is a uh, torch talk. In oh my whole yeah. Time. So I'll look that up. <laughs> yeah. I sold my booth last year too Good to somebody job. else so I made oh, that money back too, yeah yeah it I helps. mean I, I still lost money but I sold my booth your set up for a thousand bucks and stuff well I built that. hard walls right oh, which is crazy for yeah. your first time yeah my my trade shows that I've been to they charge by the pound to bring it in the door so we built our whole booth out of styrofoam and like <gasps> it was like super artistic to try and like you know push the level but I mean by the pound that's not including your work so I want somebody who professionally designs craft show booths to come on the yeah. podcast because there's people yeah. that have that career and it's I think an that's awesome, such an yeah, interesting career <laughs> oh well thanks so much I yeah think thank over. you <laughs> That's perfect. Hi. Hi. So I'm an economics major, and I'm also a musician, and, um, you know, I make jewelry here, but Mm -hmm. I'm not really a jeweler. Um, But I'm interested in economic development, specifically in, like, rural communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Humboldt County and Eureka have kind of embraced uh, using art as a vehicle for economic development. In your travels, have you seen or, like, been aware of any other successful art as economic development initiatives Mm, initiatives or programs or oh Mm, I guess I wasn't thinking about it can you give me another example of what it would be an example of that so like the county or the city of Eureka like they kind of tried to pair um, artists with business owners and Mm. commission different projects in order to increase like tourism to the county so like all of the transformer boxes in eureka are all painted uh, but those are local business owners that have commissioned artists in the county to paint those things and so um the idea to be to increase like more economic activity in the county i definitely have seen that i mean around like 
even right there with the, what you're saying, that example, I've seen that happen in Seattle. I've seen that happen in LA. I've seen it happen in Philly where artists are paid. Um, New Jersey, Jersey City puts a lot of money into local artists. That city is covered in murals. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of funding for that in programs. My friend um, Catherine actually um, does like an after school program with students that get to come and she gets to teach them how to paint murals. And then in these like derelict buildings and whatnot, they're covering them with these beautiful murals. Um, so I would say Jersey City just because visually you see all these beautiful murals that I'm like, wow, they really pump a lot of money into that, which I think is amazing. Um, and it's all independent artists. And I think, you know, I think it's anywhere you go. Like I know the tiny town near Penland, they commissioned a blacksmith to build like the town clock. And I think you see little bits of that here and there. I wish we saw more on a grander scale that you could understand what's going. Um, I think people like, it's like the little engine that could, they have a little money here to make something here and there happen. Gotcha. Ugh, but gosh, I wish we were like in Europe. Yeah. Like the Swedish government. And like, is that, <laughs> they have so much money and so much funding for artists that you see how they, the government literally funds artist careers and their projects and it's really amazing interesting i'm really jealous of it yeah we were against a what country were we like oh damn they're gonna outbid us for it we're trying to get a gallery space in munich and the owner was like well there's this other group of people that are interested and i remember mallory was like damn it not the danish we'll never beat them (laughs) (laughs) they're like they get so much government funding we're paying out of pocket um so there's nowhere I can specifically think of besides Jersey City where I visually have been like, oh, there's a lot of like funding for the arts. But okay. it's everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Do I have time for another one? Yeah, I do. Um, so in your talks with other artists uh, in terms of like trying to start collectives or like successful like uh, gallery spaces, mm-hmm. do you hear or are you aware of any sort of like um, city or government like obstacles that these these places kind of face when they're trying to come up as like a collective like do you find that there's like bureaucratic like obstacles in order to accomplish like becoming a gallery or becoming like opening a successful like studio space like mm-hmm. or are are more often than not like cities or you know like more embracive or embracing of like of that yeah i mean i think god bureaucratic red tape i think codes and all that kind of stuff is why we don't see as many galleries and things like that because Mm -hmm. we don't have the money right so yeah yeah really hard difficult all the time um you know i have more experience speaking to diy you know where you kind of like rent a house and turn a bedroom into a gallery space or rent a storefront and it is a gallery but um it's a commercial space that you're just signing a lease for and you pray that you can keep funding going from month to month to make it work um or maybe there's you know eight people signing on to the lease and everybody can say hey we can handle 200 dollars a month to do this um, and I think it depends on how you view what an actual gallery space is. Anything could be a gallery, it could be a closet, um, pretty much. So, right. um, there's this thing called vignettes in Seattle who 
kind of became a well-known curatorial space and it was her studio apartment I believe or their studio apartment um and once a month they would move all their furniture to like one room in their apartment and have a gallery opening and live in a gallery for like a week wow yeah so um I haven't opened up any space of our own even the fact even our space in um we are in what we call the Bach building that has like all these studio artist spaces and Emily was one of the first people in that space and you know in the beginning it was kind of like rogue like oh we're just trying to get people in here and start it it's old school it's kind of creepy and now we're seeing five years into it or something the more um legit they become the harder it is for us to exist there in some ways like they keep Hmm. being like oh now you have to have this fire code and this is the fee for it and you have to pay this much money to have this type of insurance and oh you're gonna get a fine if you cover your doors and people walking by can't see in it which i think is total bullshit um so we're finding that the more legit a space becomes there's more aspects to it that make it harder for us to survive there financially gotcha or just enjoy the experience okay thank yeah. you oh good you're gonna have to like talk yes yeah, there, there it go. is that's it cool uh what kind of negative feedback or interactions should uh, an artist interested in freelance commission type work expect from that line of work you know what I mean? Oh God, a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's why it's important to have a contract. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, you know, her ask, answer, um, like, should I take a deposit? Absolutely. Because in that contract, you're going to say, if you decide to terminate this project um, at this point, or if you decide that at the end of it, that you don't like the way that the project turned out, Um, and are refusing to pay me the other half, well, then I have my deposit anyways. And that's the reality of it. My day job, that's a big part of my reality. I do a lot of custom work. And we as a company consistently have to face the fact that we can finish a custom piece and the client can say, this is not what we discussed at all. Even though there was renderings and pictures and discussions and et cetera. And so you have to do your best to um, protect yourself in that case and understand that it's gonna happen. And it's really unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. I'm not gonna say this, but I'm gonna say it. I feel like the peop- the more money people have, the less they have an understanding of like what their decisions affect you. So somebody who can afford a $10,000 commission and just say, oh, you know, just is not what I envisioned. And I don't think it was executed well enough. So I'm just like not gonna take it anymore. Okay. Um, don't understand that that $10,000 could have been like your livelihood planned out for the next three months. Right. Yeah. What kind of thing do you think happens the most? As like, like someone agrees to a project of some sort and mm-hmm. then like halfway through they decide what like what kind of thing would they I think um, I think as a visual person and as an artist, I have a really easy time describing and articulating what I want aesthetically, right? Like mm-hmm. if I told you I wanted a chair made, I can I can understand like the kind of curves I want on it or like the height and the functionality that I need from that chair and what that's going to be. But I have a hard time understanding that there's people out there that can't articulate what they visualize in their head and they don't they can't even draw it and they can't 
you know, you get to this point where like you just can't meet or maybe through the process of trying to help them, like Mm -hmm. explain to you what they want, their vision gets lost. Mm-hmm. But they're not confident enough to speak up and say, actually, this pr- this project has gone in a way that I don't really want. And this is not looking like what I envisioned. And, oh, God, I'm putting a lot of money into this. And holy crap. And then what happens is that you keep thinking that the client's happy and they don't have enough confidence or just they avoid confrontation in every way they can. So they never speak up and say, you're doing this wrong and I'm paying you. I need you to do this. Right. And so then you finish it and it's not what they wanted. Mm-hmm. So you'd say the, like an underlining issue is not like a person not being an artist limits the way they describe their old overall vision mm-hmm. of what they want. Not being able to yeah, accurately describe what they really want and not speaking up mm-hmm. for what they want as well. At what point would, uh, as an artist, you take like a very vague idea and kind of go with it in your own direction if that's what they want. Well, there's some people that do that. Mm-hmm. They're like, I just love everything you've done. I love your aesthetic. I love the way you work. Here's the budget. This is what I want. Just do what you're going to do. Here's $3,000. Make me a necklace. That's you. Okay. And you still need a contract with that person. Right. right. And actually just take all that money up front. <laughs> they're willing to give it to you. Um, but those are the best commissions, but they're also kind of the scariest because mm-hmm. you have no idea what they want and you just have to be true to your own aesthetic. But then you question that. Yeah. You're like, well, will they like this? They kind of dress like this. And then it's hard because if you adapt your aesthetic or whatever to what you think they will like, you're not going to give them what they want. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's hard too. Good luck, commission work. Woo! Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, girl. Hi. So, thank you for being here. Aw. Thank you for having me. Aw. You know, it's such an, a wonderful treat to be on this side of the microphone across from you. <laughs> it's a different experience over here. <laughs> I have a few questions, and I just realized when looking them over that, that the third question mm-hmm. ties into the first two so okay. i'll just let you roll and with with where this goes okay uh the first one is how did you become an ajf ambassador i don't know it just like i got an email and they were like hey do you want to be an art jewelry form ambassador now that was a huge moment of imposter syndrome in my life where i was like really and, and, you know, it's like AJF U.S. ambassador. Well, that's a lot of people. Um, and I was just kind of like, it was in, it was before the podcast even started. Hmm. It was the summer I started recording the, my first episode for the podcast. Or maybe it was like right afterwards. Um, and I don't know. They just said, I asked because I'm nosy. And I was like, why did you ask me? And they're like, oh, somebody suggested your name. And that was it. That's the only other explanation I ever got. So it wasn't correlated with with any of the schools or any of the craft or the studies that you've done? I mean, I'm sure that they had seen and, you know, I really utilize social media to kind of push myself out there. So I'm sure my presence online and what I was doing was somebody had taken note of. And, you know, it could have just been somebody I'd met in passing and that happened to be a board member and I didn't realize it and they threw my name out. But that's the kind of thing I try to tell and really you know, stress to people that a lot of these things that you can get, not that it's arbitrary, but it might be 
being at the right place at the right time or making a really great impression on somebody that makes it, needs to make a decision later down the road. Um, and I don't really know how a lot of it happens. I just keep doing what I'm doing and these things kind of line up and it's not a fun answer because no but that's an art in itself well you know also I know our jewelry forum is a type of place that they need people so if you write in and say how do you get to be involved what do I have to do how do I get to become an art jewelry forum ambassador they might just say you're one <laughs> well, well that actually leads to one of the other questions which is what are some of the responsibilities of being an, an art jewelry forum ambassador well you know I just had a talk with a conversation with um, this gallerist, Sienna Patty, who's been on the board for about 20 years. I th she's um, retiring, as she should, been a long time. I think 20 years, I don't know. Um, but she, I, I approached her, there used to be this guy, Kevin, who created a Trello board. And so Trello board is like a multifunctional work space for people where multiple people can um, post things or share data or, uh, I'm not describing it well, but uh. um, so when I first signed up, they were like, basically what an art jewelry forum ambassador does is that your role is to keep art jewelry forum informed of what's going on in your community or your country. So that's when I got really into following everybody I could on Instagram. I signed up for every newsletter for all the galleries I could think of. And my job, I would just be scrolling through trying to follow as many people and see what they're doing. And when I would come across any kind of event or opening or function, um, it couldn't be related specifically to one person. It had to be groups. I would add that information on the Trello board. And then Kevin, who ran the social media, would take that information and share it on their platforms. Would you look at locations around, like in, in terms of being an ambassador for the United States in its totality, would you mm -hmm. look at balancing where and who you're looking at for region? Like, I really tried to. Mm -hmm. I did. I think that was one part that I struggled with understanding that... Um, it's not necessarily nepotism, but it's just a little like, at, like what I said, like whatever happened across my path is what I paid attention to. And I did my best to um, diversify my feeds and follow people I didn't know and follow like work that I didn't really like um, to kind of enrich that diversity. But it really came down to whatever I came across. And so on the Trello board and not really understanding altogether what that is, but as an ambassador, is part of your your role to create forums for, let's say, artists from other countries to come and experience the United States? You know, I think they were strategic in picking me. I think that was a little bit of maybe that because I was somebody, I'm a very outgoing person. So maybe in knowing that I'm the type of person that um, on my own will travel to Munich Jewelry Week to attend, on my own will travel to conferences to attend, went out on my way to go to craft schools. Maybe that was part of it. And they knew that by picking me, I would be connecting with other ambassadors, but it's never been something it's, I mean, I actually, the point I brought up about Sienna is I was like, Kevin stepped down from running social media, the Trello board, which is just like a work tool, you know, it's just like a, uh, what would you call those? Uh, like an interactive forum. Is yeah. it on, it's online. Yeah, it was private to us, but mm -hmm. he, it was just a place where we could all put this data, every ambassador. Um, we're not really doing anything. And, you know, it's funny. I told Sienna, I was like, yeah, I guess I'm Art Jewelry Forum ambassador, but I feel like 
I don't know, like what, what is my role? And I think that's something that the new director, Yvonne, she is definitely thinking of ways in which we can, um, engage the ambassadors and utilize us and find ways in which that we are actively contributing to our jewelry forum. And, and again, um, you know, more to understand, but under the art jewelry forum, is there, is that a location? Is that a solid place that something can be worked from, uh, to create maybe a gathering location or an exhibiting space here in the United States for other students? for other artists it's more of a sharing platform um so it's it's non-formative it's non-structural um but what they'll do is that they have art jewelry forum ajf gatherings so you know at the snag conference i'm assuming there's going to be a night where they'll send out an email and they're like ajf gathering and they'll pick a bar for people to come have cocktails um when i was in munich jewelry week art jewelry forum hosted a series of panel discussions that people could go to so they'll create events around jewelry at jewelry focused places I will say it has been kind of cool being an ambassador because when I first did start working there was like Carlos Silva hey Carlos um he's a art jewelry forum ambassador for Portugal like I got to meet him when I went to Munich Jewelry Week and then he introduced me to all his friends and one of them was Marta Costa Reich who eventually came to New York City Jewelry Week from Lisbon and came on the podcast and it it is kind of cool that when you've gone places to have people say oh she's an, she's a U.S. ambassador, and you guys can kind of connect in that way. So one of the things that I, I realized I love when I, I'm taking these courses and the, and the two areas of field that I'm focusing on arts are actually language mm-hmm. and the arts. And I realize I'm they're both I'm I'm basically in the field of communication. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying also touches into me and the realization that we uh, use art to communicate across borders and across boundaries and mm-hmm. and it speaks visually you can touch you can feel mm-hmm. and and i think that's where we can actually start finding some solutions uh politically as well as to to reach out and and, and make friends yeah i think the coolest part about my career and what's brought me the most joy is when i've the more i connect with the international jewelry scene mm-hmm. um that's why i save money to go to munich jewelry week because it's my one chance to meet people from all over the world Um, It's really cool. Well, thank you for reaching out to everyone. Yeah, thanks. I'm ready when you are. Okay, ready. Okay. Um, So it wasn't until I moved here to HSU that I realized that jewelry and small metals was something that you could pursue. Mm -hmm. And... um, being up here in Arcata, it's it makes me feel like it's a very small world, and if there is like this world, it feels very far away. And so, mm-hmm. my question is, what are some events that you think are worth traveling to for aspiring art jewelers, and just um, platforms to keep up to date on, like on mm-hmm. connections and communications? And yeah. Um, oh yeah, this is an easy one. Okay, so um, Art Jewelry Forum. Uh, it is a platform they get on their mailing list um, snag society of north american goldsmiths get on their mailing list Um, snag has an annual conference Um, and you know it can be expensive to attend but there's a lot of student scholarships you can volunteer to get costs lowered you can pitch in with friends to do an airbnb i think what's important is to just There's symposiums, like smaller things all around the country that you can go to. So on this side of the country, the Seattle Metals Guild 
is a baller organization and they have a symposium, a one day symposium every year. Um, so definitely look into that. I don't know how far Seattle is from here. Um, the Yuma symposium, I've never gotten to go to it because it's too far across the country for me. Um, but it's on my bucket list to attend, which I will, um, East coast, there's the ECU symposium. There was the zoom symposium that I I think was held at the university of Milwaukee in the Midwest. Um, what I really like seeing is when schools or organizations are like, screw it, we'll make our own symposium. So they come to us. Like what would happen in it? If HSU, people want to come to Arcata, guys. You have gigantic trees. Um, what it would happen is if you guys created your own symposium or if you partnered with the Mendocino Arts Center and you had something like, um, I'm going to be a, I think I'm going to be the keynote speaker. I've never done that before. But at something called the Alchemist Picnic, which is at a small craft school on the East Coast where it's a weekend long event where people can come and stay and have lectures and demos. What if you partnered with Mendocino Arts Center and made a call for any student that want to come, come, and then you guys get to choose all the presenters or you get to be a presenter. Um I think it's really important to remember your small bubble. So you have to get out there. I remember thinking, okay, I immersed myself in the craft community. I plopped myself in front of Penland. I plopped myself in front of Aramont. I want more. I want to be on the international community because the art jewelry community is so rich internationally. Love America, but we did not create art jewelry in the same way that like... The Europeans did. It's very different. Um, and you need to be exposed to that. I went to a residency where they had a $1,200 professional development grant. Um, and so I asked if I could go to Munich Jewelry Week. Um, to give you an idea of cost, the last time I went with my friends, we each got round trip tickets in air, like um, our hotel included in our ticket, and it was $800. And there's no cost to attend Munich, it's free. Um, and so you think about food and then you're set, you know, and Aperol spritzes, Mm -hmm. which can be a lot of your budget. Let's be real. Um, other organizations or things that happen, you know, you can attend things like SOFA, which is, you know, art fairs like Art Basel or Design Miami or Collective Design in New York City. Um, any of these kind of things that bring people in from all over the country or world are worth going to and connecting with people. Thank you. Um, dude, what was your first, I guess, exposure to these worlds? Oh my God. I'll (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget my mentor snags, um, conference travels to different cities every year. And I think the idea behind that is that somebody might not be able to afford to travel from Seattle to Philadelphia. So maybe the next year, I'm sure the conference, you know, it's in Philadelphia this year. Um, it was in Chicago last year. I bet it's going to be on the West coast next year. Um, and my first experience was my mentor, the snag conference was coming to Philadelphia. I didn't exactly understand what that meant. I had never been to a conference. I didn't even know if I wanted to go, but her partner, um, worked for a catering company that was a sponsor of the conference. And she's like, Hey, I'm giving you a free pass to go to the conference. 
I didn't realize at the time that that was like a three or four or five hundred dollar pass I was given. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went by myself. It was really lonely. It was a little weird. I felt very out of place. I was very overwhelmed. But, you know, I met one or two people that befriended me and kind of took me under their wing. And I was like, oh, this experience was really amazing. Um, and I met Angela Bubosh, who would be my first instructor at Penland, who would be one of my early mentors, who would give me my first visiting artist opportunity, paid gig ever. Um, and so, you know, meeting her at that conference, she already understood I was coming to her class and was like on the lookout for me. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm, you're good. Okay, so I'm new to a lot of these words, um, like fellowship, residency, studio assistantship, and I was wondering if you could shed a little bit of light on what you know what the difference is and like what it's like to get one. Oh, okay. Hmm. You know, I don't really understand what the difference. Okay, you know what? I think a fellowship would be defined more so as somebody that's still learning, right? God dang. Um, you know, I think it's, um, I don't want to say arbitrary, but I mean, anybody can call anything a residency. If you're like, it's a residency. I think we need yeah. to look up fellowship. I'm going to follow okay. up with you on this one. Um, my definition. Oh, she did look at her. Okay. <laughs> fellowship friendly association, especially with people who shares one interest. Mm. The status of a fellow of a college or society. Okay, so I think a residency for me and fellowship is fellowship is still like actively a student, somebody who is still getting to what they're going to be, still looking for training and um, inspiration. Whereas a residency is you kind of know what you're doing um, and you got your thing going and you know you have a clear vision of what you want to get out of that experience. You're not taking any classes. You're just there to make. Oh, here we go. Got another definition. Whew. Real time, people. In academic, oh, what does it mean to get a fellowship? In academic settings, when people say fellowship, they are generally referring to a monetary award given to a scholar to pay for her academic pursuits. Ah, what I call a work study position can be a fellowship. Damn, you learn something every day. A fellowship is typically a merit-based scholarship, that makes sense, for advanced study of an academic subject. We killed it. (laughs) So um, I also noticed that the Penland School of Craft um, has a studio assistantship. Oh, yeah. Would that be like a TA position? Yeah, so they call the studio assistant is like the TA. Um, Typically, studio assistants... You know, when an instructor's coming there, they typically have about a year of knowing that they're going to be teaching a workshop in 2020. Um, and what I have seen in my experience is that position is typically handpicked by that instructor. And they pick somebody that they felt has, you know, I know somebody who, I'm not going to name names, but I know somebody who had picked their studio assistant and that student just like dropped the ball last semester, like did not do well, did not come to class, blah, blah, blah. And that instructor was like, nope, you can't assist me at Penland anymore. But this student who's done a really good job is going to be my assistant now. Yeah. So it's, um, 
it's I feel like a lot of instructors award somebody that they felt has put in a lot of effort or could use like a little bump because you get to go for free studio assistants don't pay anything they just have to Mm. get themselves there I also know people that haven't had a studio assistant and I have been asked last minute to like fill in I've never been able to do that for somebody or they just say oh just pick one for me Um, so technically you can write Penland or haystack and say hey i want to be a studio assistant if there's anybody this summer that might need one let me know and you can go there but um it's all about like connections (laughs) i know i've never gotten i was asked once to be a studio assistant by Jaden moore um he was like hey i'm gonna teach concentration do you want to be my studio assistant and i was like oh my god Mm. yes but then i got a residency and i couldn't do it so it's the only role beside um it's well I haven't been a resident artist either but I haven't been able to be a studio assistant at Penland yet and I really want to next question well okay so on Penland yeah I've been to North Carolina once and it was absolutely gorgeous like would you elaborate on your experience there Mm -hmm. um and I noticed that you focused on lost wax casting oh yeah and we're doing a little bit of that right now oh Um, girl you did your research on me (laughs) Um, I think I fell in love with casting because my mentor didn't do any of it. Well, she did. She had pieces cast within her collection, but she outsourced all that. So mm-hmm. um, I I was raised a fabricator, as I like to say, you know, like I could solder anything with a mini torch when I was working for her. Um, but I never got an opportunity to cast or take a class. And so um, I think that's why I kind of really dug into it because mm-hmm. I loved it and it's kind of magical. Um, and I had the facilities to do it there and I didn't realize how lucky I had it when I was there to just be able to consistently keep casting and doing that on my own. Um, they had something, what I call the spaceship where you literally put a flask into this chamber that I think has argon gas in it. Um, um, but then you weigh out Mm. your metal and you pour it into this other chamber and it melts it to the perfect temperature and then you push a button and it like cast it to perfectly like you're pretty much like you can't screw it up and you can cast mm-hmm. by yourself it's magical that machine is thousands and thousands of dollars yep yep emily's <laughs> like a lot of money a lot of money um my experience in north carolina hmm it's the first time i'd ever lived anywhere like that i thought it was really beautiful mm-hmm. um I didn't take it for granted, but my experience while I was living there, my personal life, like really affected my experience there. I moved there engaged. Oh yeah. Your girl's on Tinder. So (laughs) (laughs) that obviously, so my personal relationship crumbled. Um, A lot of people's relationships, I think this is something I really want to have a whole podcast episode about how our personal studio practice and endeavors for our careers affect our ability to find Mm -hmm. love or lasting relationships. Um, You know, I chose Penland over my engagement in some ways and we didn't last and I know a lot of people that in the core fellowship they kind of joke that it breaks up relationships I think a lot of people make that comment about um, MFA programs too where a lot of people go in with a partner and they go out single kind of Um, and so that happened it was beautiful Asheville's right there I explored Asheville a lot I really Mm -hmm. liked that I didn't have a car though so one of the only people in the house that didn't have a car so that really limited my um way to experience but 
Um, and then, you know, my best friend passed away my first summer there and I had a really hard time kind of, uh, regrouping and Mm -hmm. living in such a small community while I was grieving. Um, and then my second year, my grandpa was actively dying. Um, and I, he raised me. So it was Mm -hmm. like my dad and I was just like, okay, well, God, I'm stuck at this craft school and I can't leave and I don't have money to get home to see him even if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think somebody had asked me a previous question, like what's been your biggest, um, like challenges with my, my career as an artist. And it's been my personal life, you know? And I think that's, a lot of people can say that. I can definitely relate with that. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, it's been smooth sailing for a couple of years. No one's died. I'm still single, but you know, (laughs) working on things, um, working that Tinder grind, (laughs) working that Tinder. Would I have stayed in North Carolina? Probably not. Access to female reproductive rights is, um, scary there. Um, but they need more people that are willing to live there and vote and help. Um, uh, yeah, no, North Carolina is beautiful, dude. But a good like two week. Oh my God. It's beautiful. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't know if you were talking about the grander scheme of things. There's swimming holes, like the Uh rivers, like make friends with somebody who has a car for the summer session and then make friends with like core fellows or whatever, and try to figure out somebody that's been there before that Mm -hmm. knows where the, um, the swimming spots are. Um, because typically, you know, on weekends after your lunch shift or something, there's nothing better than running and jumping in the river, um, between studio time. Definitely. Yeah, uh, it's so fun. You're going to love it. It's yeah. expensive to fly into Asheville. Um, try to fly into Charlotte, North Carolina mm-hmm. and find a ride share to Penland or rent a car or somebody that wants to rent a car with you. Okay. That's an insider scoop. Sounds good. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, can you talk a bit more about your transition from like traditional academia into just craft school and like your decisions regarding that and whatnot? Oh yes. Those weren't my decisions. Those were forced. (laughs) Um, no, when I first went my freshman year of college, I went to the university of Iowa. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I signed up as a pre-dentistry major were classes that would put me into dentistry school because I saw how big my orthodontist house was. Um, I just wanted whatever was going to make me rich. Um, I failed out. I had Jesus, I had somebody close to me commit suicide. And so I, my, I failed out and I couldn't go back to the university of Iowa because my GPA. Um, and then I went to a small liberal arts college that was still willing to give me a scholarship and FAFSA was still willing to give me money. Um, so I went there, um, and that I just was like, I'm not cut out for academia. I got straight A's one semester and the next semester I had like D's and C's just cause I didn't want to be there. And I'm so proud of my 22 year old, whatever self for being like, um, I don't want to be here. So I'm just not going to do this. You know, like think about how much money I saved myself by dropping out. Um, so then I moved to Seattle and I'm working, you know, a job at a movie theater and in between movies, I'm making like trinket jewelry. And then my friend Catalina is like, Hey, these are cute. Like you should take a jewelry class so you can like make real jewelry. And I was like, Oh my God, you can do that. Um, and then I took a night class at a fine arts center that I could afford. 
and I was, and I met my mentor. She was my first instructor in that class. And she's like, you've got a knack for this. And you seem really excited about it. And I was like, I am, I am so excited. Um, and she would invite me to like an open studio and I would be there and she would be like, Hey, do you want to come to my studio and help me this Saturday? And I'd show up like, and be like, yes, I'm here. I'm ready to go. Um, and then I was like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to go back for school for this. And I remember there was one program. I went and visited it. I filled out paperwork. I went to FAFSA. I did all these things. I made an appointment to pick out my classes. I remember the day I had to go into this office and I remember her telling me, I'm sorry, but your financial aid has been denied. And they're like, you, uh, turns out FAFSA just won't keep giving you money after you drop out or like fail out. <laughs> they were like, you're cut off. And I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Like, how do I get the money? And she's like, well, you have to have the money. And I don't, I don't understand why I couldn't get a loan, but thank God no one said just take out a personal loan. I don't think they would have given me one anyways at that point. And so that is when I was crying on the phone with my dad. I remember walking down the street crying on the phone with him and he was like, well, just keep doing what you're doing. Who cares? And I was like, but dad, like I can't go to school for this. So like, what am I going to do? And he's like, just keep taking the night class. And I was like, oh, right okay right and so I signed up for another class and Sarah caught wind that I got denied financial aid and I couldn't go back to school and she was like well why don't you just come work for me one day a week and I'll show you things that you want to learn and I was like you would do that and she's like yeah but like you in exchange you have to work for me and so we created something called Sarah's power hour um, where I would come to her home studio or her studio. I think she was in a studio. I worked with her through a lot of studios. <laughs> one was in a bedroom. Um, but that one, I would come and I would bring materials or, and I'd be like, okay, I want to learn how to bezel set something. And she's like, okay, this is a bezel setting demo. Boom. Okay, now go make my production jewelry for seven hours. And that's what we did. And that what started, and I think it just worked because I'd show up. I never canceled on her. I treated it like a job. It was the one thing a week that I looked forward to in my life at that point. Um, I prioritized it over going out and getting wasted the night before. Um, and it turned into what we called a three-year apprenticeship where I traveled to LA Fashion Week and I traveled to craft shows with her. And through that, she got me another internship with another jeweler who ended up taking me to Washington, D.C. for the first time to assist her at the Smithsonian craft show. And that led to when my crazy boss fired me or changed my schedule last minute and it conflicted when I could work with Sarah, I quit my job. I walked out on her. I was like, no, you can't do this. And then I was jobless. And then all those people that I've been working for for free went to this blacksmith and was like, give her a job. She needs one. And then I got my first job being paid making something. That's how I got in my non-traditional. Forced, but thankful. Yeah. The right way. Kind of the right way, right? Yeah. Good question. That was it? Yeah. Oh, you did good. Are you my last one? I guess I am. Last but not least. (laughs) Oh, man, I've never talked this much, and that's saying a lot. (laughs) Uh, Well, I hope that my questions are nice, but... uh, You have a nice, soothing voice. I'm happy we're ending with you. (laughs) Thank you. 
Okay, so what do you believe to be more important when trying to make a career as an artist? Having quality ideas and works or being more involved through social interaction? Oh my God, you're this guy? I love your questions. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know who this is. <laughs> Wait a minute, start over. I was just like in my mind like, oh, it's this guy. Okay, I know what in, I'm in for. Go. <laughs> so the same question? Yes, I need to rethink. Okay. Uh, what do you believe to me more important when trying to make a career as an artist? Having quality ideas and works or being more involved in art through social interactions? Oh my God, I am such a social butterfly. For me, I remember my mentor, right? Sarah Larcher, I was just talking about her. She had, there was this um, independent paper called Ledger being released by this online platform called Craft and Culture. Um, that was just a curated online site of local artisans and their work. But it was so cool because they came and did a photo shoot and I was in it and they had rented out this gallery space and they were having this big event and they were la launching this like independent paper they were doing and Sarah was like featured in the paper and it was going to be a moment to dress up and whatever. And I was like, yes, I love shit like this. I live for it. And then I remember Sarah being like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Like I got a lot of work to do in the studio and I'm kind of tired. And at that, I was like, wait a minute, what? Like I only got into being an artist to be able to do things like this. But she was so much more the person that was like, no, I'm just in this to be in a room by myself making my work. Um, and I was like, oh, we are very different in that factor. <laughs> um, and I think that's why the podcast has been such a successful three year long studio practice for me because it feeds into my need to have um, interactions with people. And then it allows me to travel and um, do events and kind of, you know, do these kind of things. Um, so do you think that, say you're not really into the social interactions and you're more about work and everything, do you think you should really push yourself in that direction anyways, because how helpful it can be? <sighs> well, I don't know. I think don't do anything that you don't want to do. I think it can help to meet collectors. It depends on the type of work you're making. I think it always is helpful to be seen at places like that and do those types of things. But then I know that there's people that never do things like that because they hate it and they're fine. I think you just have to find what works for you. Um, but I love that kind of stuff. So <laughs> I'd always be like, yes, it'll totally help you go for it. Um, but that's just my own perspective. Why are you the person that just wants to sit in your room by yourself all the time? <laughs> no, it's not. I just, uh, learning through art history classes, it seems like a lot of artists become more, the social butterflies seem to be the ones that are becoming the more popular artists. Whereas it seems like people that are very quality artists sometimes don't even get recognized until after their death. So, you know, what's interesting and I'm, oh God, I'm blanking on his name, but I love him. Oscar playwright, flamboyant, famous Oscar Wilde. He is a great example of somebody who his flamboyant personality, the way he dressed, the people he surrounded himself with, he was all about that light nightlife that elevated his um, career. You know, mm -hmm. I think a big part of my success is my available, my availability to, or my ability 
to want to be in these kind of spaces and things like that. I mean, I'm very honest about it. I created a podcast and that's what's made a name for myself within my field, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Think of Oscar Wilde, but (laughs) also (laughs) he died a really tragic life. Um, Yeah. Um, So I guess to wrap it up with my final question, it would Mm -hmm. be, do you find podcasting more fulfilling than your artwork? And if you had to give one up, which would it be? Well, my friend, podcasting is my artwork, Um, which I talked about in my talk last night where I really struggled as my identity as an artist. Can I call myself a jeweler anymore if I'm not actively having a jewelry practice? Can I call myself um, a podcaster? Uh, I am more fulfilled from my work from the podcast than I ever was creating and selling objects. I will say that. Um, I found my thing. I found my niche and I'm really thankful because people can go, people can sometimes not that find their niche until they're 60 years old, you know? Um, and I don't know how long this niche will last for me or how long I want to keep doing it, but I do feel more fulfilled from the podcast than I ever was in other roles. Thanks. Thanks for answering my question. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) We did it, you guys. Oh my God. Perceived Value is recorded and produced by me, Sarah Rachel Brown. If you love the podcast and you want to show your support, become our patron. Visit patreon.com slash perceivedvalue to learn more. Or check out our website at perceivedvaluepodcast.com and click on the support page. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>